The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations comes from The Guardian Network. No matter what you're planning for, saving to buy your first house, or becoming an encore entrepreneur in retirement, you're more likely to achieve your goals when you have a financial professional by your side. The Guardian Network community of financial professionals are dedicated to helping you achieve your financial goals. An important first step is improving your financial and emotional confidence. To get started, visit livingconfidently.com forward slash get started. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today uh, by Sonia Dreisler, who I am proud to say is a fellow member of the best investment news 40 under 40 class of all time, uh, the 2015 edition. She has an incredible story, 15-year career in the financial services where she literally started as an executive assistant, worked her way up to VP, then COO, then CEO, before jumping out on her own and taking this wealth of knowledge to help advisors integrate socially responsible investing into their practices. So welcome. Thank you. What a lovely introduction. And yes, the 2015 Investment News 40 Under 40 class is certainly the best one. (laughs) Well, everyone's going to be proud, but let's talk for a minute about the murderer's row that we have in 2015. We've got... The, the two of us, which would be enough, frankly, <laughs> <laughs> that we've got, we've got Aaron Klein, the founder of Risk Alive. We've got downtown Josh Brown. I mean, we've got Rianca. I mean, that is a killer class. Good luck to the future classes because you're not going to top ours. And the uh, CEO of Redtail too, right? That's right, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Yep. CEO of Redtail. My goodness. Yes. Yeah, it was a good class. It was. <laughs> It's a good class. Okay, so I read your I read your formal bio, right? But yes. the formal bio for someone like you, someone as uh, as interesting as you, doesn't begin to capture who you are. So, what's something that the listeners might want to know about you that doesn't show up on the on the work bio? Yeah, well, gosh, it feels like most of the important, or at least the interesting stuff about me, isn't in a formal professional bio. In fact, as you probably saw on my website, where the bio usually is. There's stories instead, stories of my amazing career journey, which we can talk about if you want to. Um, And then how I've always been passionate about impact investing. In terms of bios in general, I think that formal career bios are not a great way to introduce, (laughs) introduce ourselves. So for my clients, I try to set the example by showing some more interesting stories uh, on my on my introduction to who I am section of my website. But professionally, the thing that I'm really passionate about that doesn't often fit into the formal bio is my passion for advancing racial equity and justice inside of financial services. It's important to address this now and frankly, um, both inside of the financial world, which as you know, (laughs) tends to be overwhelmingly white, And also, I'm interested in how we can use the tools inside of the financial services systems to advance racial equity and justice on a broader scale. I know that's not what our interview is focused on today, but that is probably the thing that doesn't really make it into the professional bio usually when I get introduced. But it's something that I talk about often. Look, I know we've got some questions, but like let's let's take every interesting path we we come to. So I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you have any statistics off the top of your head about the, the racial makeup of the financial services profession? Oh, gosh, I wish I did have some handy. I don't. Um, I only have my sort of my anecdotal experience, which is broad. Um, and just for your listeners to, to know, I'm white and so happy to talk about this. And it does get a little awkward sometimes for white people to talk about race. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't talk about it because it can be really awkward, but it's okay to do it and get started. Um, so I don't have any, uh, any statistics off the top of my head. No, but, um, 
if you look at any, especially the higher you get um, into financial services companies, the more sort of older the the um, people get, which that makes sense. Uh, uh, and then the more frequently the board and C-suites are white and mostly male too. Now you you talked about two things. I hope I I hope I'm getting them right. One was one was advancing racial equity within the profession, but then yes. the second one, if if I understood it right, and correct me if I didn't, the second sort of focus of yours was using the financial services profession as a tool for doing good in communities of color. Is did I hear that right? Um, yes, not necessarily doing good in communities of color. Although that that certainly is an effect, more working inside using the shareholder engagement process, which I know we'll probably chat about today, using the shareholder engagement process to ask and get companies to be more inclusive in their uh, hiring, get more, not just to um, have more diverse staffs, but to make their companies welcoming places where people of a wide variety of backgrounds, races, ethnicities, genders can thrive and feel comfortable, produce good work. Yes, we will absolutely talk about that today. So to, to begin to talk about your story a bit, you are, um, you are sort of socially responsible investing royalty, right? Your family has a long time yeah. <laughs> involvement in this movement. Can you tell us a bit about, about that family involvement and how you got started? Yeah, definitely. I um, I mean, I grew up in the industry, sort of. Uh, my dad was one of the first SRI advisors in the country. He's still practicing, so shout out to Bob Dreisler. He's an advisor in Sacramento. Um, and he passed on both the passion for justice and also what he calls the mutant financial gene. Uh, he passed those on to me. I did not think this would be my career. In fact, I have an English degree. I, when I got out of college, I was doing copy editing. I moved to San Francisco to, since my husband, then boyfriend, now husband had a job up here and couldn't find any work in copy editing and sort of landed in financial services. And turns out I'm good at it. And but it's not the financial services piece that has kept me in so long. The part I'm passionate about is the impact and SRI. And that's what that's, um, so I'm good at the financial services part, the SRI, ESG and impact investing is what's kept me in and interested. So it's, it's interesting because we, we've had a similar path in some respects. I mean, obviously, I, as a doctor of clinical psychology, didn't, didn't uh, go down that educational path going, oh, well, I'll work in finance one day and, you know, I'll, be the, I'll, I'll work for an asset manager in, in Philadelphia, right? Right. So <laughs> we both sort of came from, we both sort of came from outside the world. And the things that have kept me in the business, I'd say there are, there are two things. You know, the first is, is understanding the degree to which financial services is undergird by behavioral realities. You know, the fact that psychology, which I love, plays so prominently into all uh, the way that financial markets work is a big part of what keeps me there. And the second piece that, that keeps me there or has kept me there historically has been the same thing that, that you're interested in a focus on values-based investing. But, but if I'm honest, and I, I shared this with you when we met and had lunch uh, uh, late last year, I guess, I began to sort of lose my religion a bit with, re with respect to the ability of values-based investing to do good in the world. And the, the things that began to gnaw at that conviction, I think, were a fear that um, working in the public equity space, which is the part of the market that I love, um, that, that SRI didn't maybe do a ton of good mm -hmm. um, because these, these shares trade on a secondary market. Right, not, they just go from one from a buyer to a seller without actually changing the intent or impact of the company, right? Exactly, exactly. So I've, you know, I've, I've struggled with, with that a bit. Yep. So I, I want to believe, 
I, I want to believe. So what, what do you say to someone who's maybe, you know, I don't know, friendly but skeptical to, to socially responsible approaches? And, and before you do that, can you give us some definitions? Because I think that's such yes. important grounding. Yes, I actually do think we should start with definitions and then get into that because I do have an answer. And I think friendly but skeptical is a good way to approach probably a lot of new things. Yeah. And that is often where I find myself starting the conversations with financial services firms that I that I work with. So um so let yeah, let's start with definitions. So and let me preface it by saying that this question comes up a lot doing what I do, and it can feel really tedious to go through the definition of impact investing versus ESG, SRI, sustainable. And it's actually really important to have this conversation because until there's more consensus and public understanding around how we use these terms and a real common language, it's important to start with definitions to make sure everyone in the conversation is on the same page. And I'll stick mostly to public equities when I'm talking here, although impact investing often includes uh, private, private investments as well. So first let's start with ESG, because that is maybe the most common term that I see thrown around right now. And it often, people will associate it with SRI or socially responsible or they'll associate it with impact and it's related, but it's definitely not the same. So ESG is data on environmental, social and governance factors at a company. And so looking at how they perform, how, what their policies and procedures and actual activity is in terms of with, through an environmental lens, a social lens, a governance lens, you might want that data because you want to invest in companies that are doing well by the planet, or you might be looking at it because you think that companies that don't treat their employees well, um, that that is a risk factor. And so many folks use ESG as a risk mitigation tool, just looking for off balance sheet risk, because as you know, if you've been in financial services for more than more than a year or two, you've, you've seen that companies that have what is termed off balance sheet risk, as soon as there is an incident, it goes straight to the balance sheet. So um, off balance sheet risk is never really off the balance sheet. And so ESG is a really great way of finding some of that, looking at how companies treat their employees, what their policies are, how the you know how transparent or not transparent their corporate governance is, what kind of voices they're including at the board and executive level. So that's ESG and that's data. And what you do with the data is, or what a manager does with the data is really up to them. SRI is socially responsible investing. Now also confusingly, sometimes it stands for sustainable, responsible and impact investing. So keeping the same SRI, but trying to add in these other terms, I think partly because socially responsible feels sort of judgmental. Uh, SRI may, the SRI community may be trying to shake that. Um, but let's go with the socially responsible investing name. That usually comes with an idea of intentional impact, trying to either first look for companies that have good in, you know, social good or environmental good in their mission and the way of doing business sort of baked into the business. That's harder to find in public equities It's or easier to find in the private markets. Um, taking out, um, excluding companies that are really um, offenders, either on the risk side or the value side, and also engaging, doing shareholder engagement where you're talking to the companies that you own and asking them to do better in different ways as it relates to the environment or human rights or corporate governance. And SRI can include any or all of those things or any combination. And also one of the pieces that I often forget, many people often forget to talk about, is also not just equities, but you can find this in fixed income, a very similar strategy. Of course, the investment part is different and the engagement part is different with uh, bondholders than shareholders. 
there's fixed income as well and community lending. So lending, lending many SRI mutual funds take one or 2% of their, what would be cash holdings and invest in community, uh, lend money to communities in, uh, communities in need. So at the, at the risk of jumping the line here, I want to, I want to, I want to talk a bit about the, the, the two meanings of SRI and the one where you said it, it it's sort of a morally loaded term, right? Like socially responsible. Yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, by, by whose account. Exactly. What, what, what advice do you give advisors who, when they're engaging in a program of SRI, uh, may potentially have to help people invest in a way that's contrary to their own beliefs, if that makes sense. You know, it, yep. it, it occurs to me that, that the E and the G, there's maybe broader consensus around what good looks like. But, you know, yep. one person's social good is another person's social ill in many cases. How do you counsel folks around that? Yeah, that's such an interesting question and probably the one that I spend the most time with. And just to back up a little bit, I usually don't work with individual advisors. Occasionally it does come up, but I'm usually working with larger firms and helping them support their advisors. And so they're struggling with this um, as well because they might have, you know, it could be a custodian that has thousands of advisors or it could be an RIA that has 10 or 100 or you know, in, or a BD with anywhere in between. <clears throat> and so they really want to sort of provide, be able to meet advisors where they are so their clients can, so the advisors can meet clients where they are. And it is a struggle to be really frank. But what advisors <clears throat> need to know is they first have to understand the landscape of what is available in the SRI and ESG and impact world figure out what it means to them, how they want to incorporate it into their practice, how they want to market it in a way that's real and authentic and they believe in and resonates with the way they do business. And then, and then knowing the product that's available when they have those conversations with clients, they need to be able to set expectations of what you are and aren't able to do with, well, public equities are, can be a little challenging and getting really specific unless you have quite a bit of, quite a bit of money and just really letting the clients know, okay, well, let's not let the perfect get in the way of the good. There's no such thing as a perfect portfolio. So let's do, let's meet you where you are and, and make your portfolio a bit more reflective of what you care about. And that really varies so much from client to client, how deep they want to go, what their passions are. And then given the different restrictions based on asset amount, um, what's available on your investment platform, that that's where it's really individual to each firm or each advisor. And then even down to each can be down to each client. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, thank you for humoring me there. Now, if yeah. we- if we could get back a bit now to the to the impact conversation, what is the if we're talking about public equities and perhaps an ESG framework, mm-hmm. given you know given some of the concerns that that I expressed when I began to have sort uh, of yes. wavering faith in this, how how do you think about impact in the public equity space? Yeah, so I think the thing that gets overlooked often in the discussion, the broader discussion outside of the sort of the SRI community and the broader financial services world, people can be kind of dismissive of this kind of investing because they think of it as just divesting from things you that people don't want to own, right? Say you don't, you know, don't want to own fossil fuels, so you don't own Exxon anymore and me as one person divesting from Exxon doesn't really matter, as you mentioned, or doesn't really matter to Exxon, although it might make me sleep better at night. As you mentioned before, somebody else is just going to pick that up on the other side of the transaction, and it's not going to make a difference to Exxon. But what will make a difference is when mutual fund companies and money managers and other organizations who own shares of Exxon or any other company engage in 
man discussions with management about it can be such a broad range of topics, but it can be talking about social issues, maybe how they treat their employees. Like I was mentioning before, there's recently been some in the some in the tech world asking the technology companies to really look at how their how their hiring practices and employment practices are creating not diverse workforces, not inclusive and comfortable places to work for people of color and women, and asking those companies to really take a look and do better. You know, start pulling some metrics, figure out how to take next steps to uh, improve their practices, and those often improve the bottom line too. And you can only have those conversations as a shareholder. So you have to own some shares to be able to have those conversations. And so what will happen is a mutual fund company say pick, picks a, an issue. For example, say there's one, I have a great example on my website. There's a company, a trucking company that based because of where they were based, the state they're based, they don't have equal opportunity employment for LGBTQ queer employees of any uh, of any kind. And uh, the fund company went to them, or the management company rather, went to them and said, hey, we think you should have this. It'll be better for your business to have protections for all of your employees. And of course, there's all these business school McKinsey studies that show that a diverse workforce uh, tends to create a better bottom line. And so they had the discussion with the company. The company management said, no, we're not interested. And they said, well, we really wish you would. And so they had a discussion with the board and the board said, no, they weren't interested. So they, because they own shares, they were able to take a vote to the shareholders. And they put it on the, as a shareholder resolution at the annual shareholder meeting. And the shareholders resoundingly said, yes, you should offer equal opportunity pr uh, protection to, to all of your employees. So all the protected class employees. So usually it can be a success, a real big, it feels like a success if a shareholder vote gets you know, over 2% because then you can list it again next year. But this one got over 50% the very first time. So it was a, that was a resounding success. And though they're not, it wasn't binding on management, management did change their mind and put in a policy. And so now their employees are, you know, all their employees are better served by that policy. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic story. And I remember early in my evolution and thinking about these things because they've uh, long been very interesting to me. I talked to Dan Egan of Betterment, um, and he was expressing similar enthusiasm for shareholder engagement, and I think a lot of skepticism around negative screening and divestment. Um, and he likened it to to moving to Canada if you don't like who wins the uh, the president the, the presidential yeah. vote. You know, yeah. like your your person doesn't win the vote, like that's it, I'm out of here. Well, on the in the one respect you're gone, but in in another respect you've lost any any impact you might have had. Exactly, exactly. And there are a few. I would say there's a few sort of exceptions to that rule, but generally, I I certainly favor engagement. That is the thing that I the piece of this work that I find most interesting and exciting. I also think it makes great stories to share with clients and the managers and mutual funds who do this work are happy to share the stories those share those story for advisors to share those stories with their clients is really a nice way to connect clients back to their portfolio and something that is not related to um, money performance and all of those things are important but it's also nice to have a more deep personal meaningful conversation with your clients about what their money is doing but I do want to bring up those couple exceptions because for some clients that are doing values-based investing because they want their investments to reflect their values, sometimes divesting is the way to go for that client. For example, a client who, who watched their parent die from lung cancer after years of smoking, for example, this is a pretty common one. They may not want to own Altria, or Philip Morris, any of the 
tobacco companies, they just don't want to own it, no matter how much money it can, it would make them. They will not sleep at night if that is in their portfolio. And in that case, divesting is fine. And it's very personal to each client and you, and an advisor can really help, help the client understand and where, you know, where the limitations are and pick those out. And then on a bigger scale, what I've, what sometimes pensions will divest from particular companies and where that, where I see that happening is really where engagement is not going to change what the issue is. If the, there's a, if you dis, if you fundamentally disagree with the reason that a company exists, it's pretty hard to engage them out of that issue. So for example, uh, private prisons is one that's in the headlines a lot recently. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, people have been talking about divesting from private priv prisons. It's come into the news recently because of, you know, separate their funding and facilitation of separating families at the uh, families of immigrants at the border and kind of terrible human rights abuses inside of those prisons. But those human rights abuses have been going on for a long time and many, many folks have divested from those companies. You certainly could engage, but, and for some, for some professionals, that's the right way to go. But for a lot of people, that's one area where if you fundamentally disagree that uh, about whether a company should be profiting off of imprisoning people, you can't, that's not something you can engage your way around. Does that make sense? No, it does, you know, because I've, I've, I've had the thought, you know, if you're really a values-based investor, in a sense, wouldn't you want to own, wouldn't you want to own the companies with whom you disagreed most vehemently? But, but maybe the answer is not if the business that they're in is totally and, and wholly antithetical to your beliefs. Because it, it occurs to me that even someone who had a, a green mindset could own traditional energy companies and, and, and vote their shares in such a way that maybe encourages them to look for renewable resources yep. or next-gen you know, next replacements for fossil fuels. But if the, if the whole business model uh, just breaks your heart, then maybe that's not the way to go. Yeah. So I would say looking at an investable universe, you've got at the top 5% are companies that are intentionally impactful, have mission baked, like a positive mission baked into the way they do business. And then 90% are companies that we come into contact with that are a huge part of our economy and the world economy. And they're not going away. And we are, we can either mostly agree with their purpose or kind of not agree or be okay owning them and helping those companies through engagement to do better for the planet, for the for people, for their communities, for their employees, and also for their shareholders at the same time. And then there's maybe that 5% or maybe even less of companies where you, some investors just are not willing to own because exactly what you said, it just breaks your heart too much or it's just so much against your values. And you can't, there's nothing you can do to change their business to a way that you would feel comfortable. Those are the ones you divest from. Right. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting way to, way to think about it. That's very useful. Now, uh, you and I have, you and I both work with advisors at the individual and institutional level. Uh, one thing that's always shocking to me is how few advisors are talking to their clients about this as an alternative, as even a consideration. Yep. One of the reasons I'm so bullish on values-based investing going forward is that I just feel like a wide swath of the populace has not even heard of it, is not even aware that it exists. So why do you think that's the case? And you know, when and how do you think that will change? Yeah, so I think that's the case. You know, I just, I was speaking at a at an event and I asked how many people, I always ask how many people in the audience, you know, use, imp, do impact ESG or SRI investing in some way. And, you know, who, who here does this as the main part of their practice and who 
is just learning and who has not heard of this at all. And even in, in the side of the financial services space, that the answer to that last question, who doesn't know anything about this and hasn't heard of it at all was bigger than I was expecting, especially for a conference in California. So you're right. And I, but consumers, when they're asked about it, there's so many polls about this. And so investors, when they're asked about it in terms like, you know, around their values or companies with social good missions or environmental missions, they want this kind of investing, especially um, younger generations and also women. And as all of the other, also many of the studies in the industry show, that's the direction that wealth is, is headed in, in the country. So I'm not really sure why some people haven't even heard of it yet, but I do have some ideas about for the people who've heard of it and are really resistant to adopting, I have some ideas around that. Um, I think, first of all, it takes work to learn something new, right? It's sort of a momentum thing. If you're going along in your business, you have a robust practice, you have a full schedule in your week every week, and you have a regular sort of healthy income coming in, there's not a ton of motivation to change your business. And you have to really be thinking, you know, three, five, 10 years down the line and not what's happening this week. And it's, I know it's really hard to get out of that cycle of what's happening right now and think big picture. You probably have better ideas about that on the psychological side than I do. Um, go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, I think, um, uh, one of the common retorts I hear from advisors is that no one asks for it. And it's a, right. bit of a, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem. It is, it is. And no, but also what I, what I like to say to that is how many of your clients come in asking for, you know, a 5% allocation to mid-cap international equity, right? right. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, that's our job in the financial services industry is to educate consumers, clients, investors about what is available and that this is something that they can do if they want to. So, but first, before, before an advisor offers it to clients, they have to first understand it themselves. And the, the learning piece is a challenge. And I think there's, there's another piece that nobody, nobody that I hear really talks about it, it, I think is a huge issue is that many advisors are really wary or maybe uncomfortable of ha having client conversations that revolve around something that's possibly emotional, possibly the, the values piece you mentioned before, where maybe the client's values aren't the same as their values. And also just generally around something that's less measurable and more maybe touchy feely seeming because values don't always fit into neat little boxes and advisors may be used to assessing a client's financial situation, risk tolerance, cash flow needs, and then you can model out all of that with an output that's tailored to the client, but a process that's really repeatable and driven by numbers. And you can say, okay, well, I think you should set up a revocable trust and fully fund your 401k and set up 529s for your kids. And here's because of your risk tolerance, we think you should be in a about an 80-20 portfolio, that's pretty repeatable, measurable, and the values piece is a little, um, there's a lot more gray areas, right? And I think that's challenging, and I think that just the prospect of having a conversation where there might be emotion involved, and also where the advisor might not know everything, might not be the smartest person in the room on this exact topic that we're talking about, can be a real stumbling block for people thinking about getting into this. So, so I absolutely agree with your analysis, but one thing that I've found about things that are, we'll, we'll keep using the touchy-feely phrase, it's the best one I can think of, you know, things, yep. things that are touchy-feely 
um, on the one hand are not as cut and dried. They're not as easily packaged. They require more time and deeper, more nuanced conversations. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The one we're having today. But the, but the flip side of that added effort is I, I believe that there's added stickiness. Because, oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Just in the same way that behavioral coaching and being more than an asset allocator for your clients, I think increases stickiness. I think that this sort of thing can increase stickiness too. So you and I are very much in agreement, I think, about the behavioral, the potential behavioral benefits of of values-based investing, because research has shown again and again that the more we can personalize and customize and name our portfolios, uh, the more rational we're likely to act with respect to those portfolios. So I believe that one of the biggest uh, and probably least discussed benefits of of values-based investing is that it just personalizes the enterprise and, you know, I think when it comes right down to it, someone's going to be, you know, someone who, who values, um, you know, uh, women's rights is going to be far more likely to sell out of their S&P 500 index fund than they are their women's leadership fund, which, which privileges companies that give women uh, equal representation in the C-suite and on boards. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I do think you're... you're- Absolutely right. People who are connected to their portfolio and to their advisor in ways that involve more than just money are tend to be, I would guess, longer willing to hold. I would guess I would say from my anecdotal data, which is quite a bit, um, tend to hold these positions through bumpier times like last month, for example. Um, when other clients are really worried because the only thing they're thinking about in their portfolio is the actual dollars. The values piece really grounds folks in in a way that is not available when you're just talking about it in terms of only dollars. And also just the conversation itself with even without a portfolio related to it, Clients like to be heard and understood. They're people. Everybody wants to be heard and understood, right? Seen as a whole person with ideas and thoughts and values, and they're not just a wallet, right? Yeah. And uh, I think that's really key. It's key whether or not advisors do impact or SRI investing. It's important to have meaningful personal relationships with clients, especially when you're talking about something as emotional as money. I know we like to think of it as a not emotional thing, just a dollars thing, a numbers thing, but it is really emotional. People, I briefly was an advisor and a financial planner and I had to have tissues on my desk because when we talked about people's thoughts around money, their history with money, what they wanted to do with their money, there was often tears. I was surprised the first time. And after that, I just put tissues on the on the desk for all future meetings. That's right. Well, one of you hear value investors as opposed to values-based investors. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> you, hear, you hear value investors like Warren Buffett talk a lot about, uh, you know, the, the market is not a video game. These aren't things that just go up and down. Like you're, you're owning a share of a company, you're owning yes. a share of a business and taking that to its next logical step, you know, that business employs and does right or wrong by the people it employs and the world and, you know, the, the broader community. And so I think it's actually sort of a backdoor to thinking like a, a value investor, a fundamental mm-hmm investor who looks at these companies uh, in, in more fundamental ways and less in sort of the, the pinging and ponging video game that I think so many people look at the market as uh, too, too often. Yes, absolutely. Totally agree. And I, th- I think also the trend towards index investing, while it's been good for it, helping people, you know, stay arguably good for helping many people stay diversified and invested also has taken a bit of that element away that that these are individual companies you're not just investing in when you invest in the market you're invested in individual companies 
and I think the values-based investing, you could do this with traditional investing too, but telling the stories of what clients are invested in and really tying them to what investing is, where you're giving money to a company to either do R&D or pay their employees or a variety of you know, millions of different things companies use your money for in exchange for owning a small share of the company, including the profits and dividends. And you, I think that we've lost a bit of that in the public conversation about what investing is. Yeah, I, I agree. So when you think about the future of ESG, uh, where do you see it going? How do you see technological advances playing in? Where, what, what's next for this exciting field? Yeah, well, so on a on a small level, I want to answer your your a question you asked a, a couple questions back that's sort of related, and then I'll look at the big picture level too. You asked, you know, when will we see change? When will advisors stop or start rather start adopting? And I think there's two big factors there. Advisors will look at adopting when they start to lose business because they don't offer this type of investing. And I've seen that inspire adoption many times already. And as, um, as you know, um, as much as financial services folks pride themselves on their rationality, a high percentage of practitioners make decisions based out of fear. And so when they see the the possibility of losing business, that's when they start looking at adopting and really doing the research. And the second factor that I think will really help push adoption is when larger financial services firms, so the big RIAs, the BDs, custodians, fintech firms, when they step up and play a role. And so, because understanding the whole playing field of how how to talk to clients and what the investment options are, it's a, it's a lot for a solo advisor or for a small RIA shop to take on. And so when those larger companies provide services to help advisors capitalize on the growing demand, I think we'll see more pickup. Mm. So that's sort of the short term, but in, in terms of the big term or the big picture, what is the future of ESG? I think that eventually every manager will be at least considering ESG data in some capacity. So looking at that, not necessarily doing value space, but looking at that environmental, social and governance data. Because like we talked about before, although it's not, you know, not something that's listed on the balance sheet, it eventually makes its way to the balance sheet. And if that data is available, investors should be looking at it. And then in terms of technology, I think technology can really refine what things are important to each investor and then customize portfolios to, to those specifications. And I've seen that a little bit with some emerging FinTech and uh, SRI robo advisors. And I, I think that we'll see more and more of that. In my experience, though, technology is slow to interrupt financial services. I remember running performance reports 15 years ago and thinking, well, soon technology is going to make this way better and quickly with the internet and computers, this is going to be so much better. And it's really not gotten that much better. Performance reporting is still a huge thorn in the side of many, maybe most advisors, right? And I mean, we just maybe backing up 10 years, we all, maybe less, five years, we all were worried that robo-advisors were going to take over and they never really did come for the jobs of people who had good client relationships. In fact, those robo-advisors have become solid technology tools for advisors. So I do think that technology will help change and give more tools to professional services, financial uh, financial providers. And I think it's going to be kind of slow. Yeah. And then really big picture, this isn't exactly ESG related, but I think the most revolutionary change that technology will have on the delivery of financial advisory services is that we'll no longer have the need for mutual funds or ETFs. Trading costs continue to decrease 
and the idea of collectively owning a basket of stocks or bonds with a bunch of strangers seems sort of silly now. I mean, I own mutual funds. And in fact, SRI and impact fund managers have all that shareholder engagement power precisely because of the fund structure and owning a lot of shares together. Um, so I don't dislike funds, but I do think technology eventually will allow for more precise and personalized portfolios. There's companies that are doing that already. But that said, the big fund companies are hugely powerful and precisely because of their size. So I suspect that change will continue to be slow. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the, the ability for tech to customize someone's holdings in this sort of whatever we want to call it, the sort of this future bespoke mutual fund you're talking about. Yeah. Because, you know, no two people's values are identical. And I think a lot of what we see today is pretty, you know, they're pretty blunt objects. You know, if you, you can buy, um, let's say, uh, funds that invest in a way that's consistent with Catholic values, but, you know, no two Catholics values probably look, look quite alike. And so I think we're going to be able to hopefully customize these things to, to fit our particular financial needs and also our particular value set. Because I think those things vary very wildly. And I think that technology will make it okay to invest in a way that fits like a glove and maybe doesn't, doesn't have some stuff that I value and some stuff I don't. So we'll yes. look to that day, right? Yes, yes. And speaking of Catholic values, I should tell you, just because it's a really interesting little bit of trivia that many people don't know, the shareholder, the folks that do shareholder engagement, many of the leaders in this space for decades and currently still are Catholic nuns. Did you know? I did not know. Shout Fun out fact. to <laughs> sisters. Good, keep they, up the good work. They are, they are. They are the ones on the, you know, often on the front lines of the conversations with Exxon and mostly on the environmental issues and also also human rights as well. Yeah, well, yep. Catholicism, Catholicism has a rich heritage of, of working for social justice and it's, it's good to see that reflected, uh, reflected in the financial world. Mm -hmm. So my, my closing, well, I guess my, my closing two questions, my closing yeah. question is a, a book or idea that, that changed your life? Hmm. So the book list is so long. I think I mentioned I was an English major. I've always loved to read um, a piece that's, and I, I love to read fiction. Actually, I read the occasional nonfiction book, including yours is on my bookshelf right now in the middle. I'm halfway through your most recent book. Um, but probably the piece of fiction that stayed with me the longest and been the most powerful is called Blindness. It's a novel by Jose Saramago. He's a Nobel Prize winning author from Portugal. And it's just a, the writing's phenomenal and heartbreaking. It's just sort of a commentary on the humanity that's both hopeful and sad. And just, a, I can't recommend it enough for people who are willing to sit down with a piece of fiction that's not necessarily fun fiction. But the thing, I was thinking about this, the, the thing that probably most changed my life or changed my perspective in the most sort of revolutionary way is probably living in another country and learning a new language. Being an outsider for an extended period of time is hard and comfortable and a really deep learning experience. It was also fun and great in a lot of ways, um, but it challenged me in ways that I didn't really know even existed. And so that has that's certainly changed my perspective. And I hope to do that again sometime. I'm trying to convince my husband right now that the next time he has sabbatical, we should move our family to another country for six months or a year. Have some suggestions of where we should go? I know you guys did that in Canada. Do, do I ever? Um, that's, <laughs> that's mine and my wife's number one goal is to live uh, to live at least on on four or five continents. We really, yeah, we'd really, we'd really, really like to see the world. We we had a blast in Canada. Um, I spent a couple of years living in Manila, so I can I can I didn't know that. Yeah, I can empathize with what it's like to to learn a new language and to the the joys and pains that come of living outside of your comfort zone. So, wh where did you live? I lived in Chile, mm -hmm. in Santiago. 
and then traveled all over South America while I was there to the extent that I could. It was such an amazing experience. Yeah, my wife's my wife's family's Norwegian, so Norway's on the short list. Uh, France, we've got. Uh, I'd love I'd love a stint in Singapore. I have lots of lots of ideas. So it's a it's a goal we share for sure. <laughs> if if people if people have been if people are enthusiastic to learn more about some of the ideas you've shared today, um, where can they find you and connect with you? Oh, that's a good question. So I live and work in San Francisco and travel and speak at conferences all over the country. So come find me in person. First of all, I'm a very much a people person and love meeting people face to face. I know that's not always possible though. So the, probably the next best thing is office hours. Every Tuesday, I host free drop-in video chat office hours to answer questions or just chat about impact or ESG or if people want to talk about what their favorite recipe is, I'm down for that too. Um, and then of course, I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn. I send a popular weekly newsletter about all things impact and ESG. Probably the best place to go, all of that is um, on my website, solutionswithsonia.com. And it's Sonia with a Y. Perfect. And you can find or you can search for me on Twitter or LinkedIn, but all the links and everything's all on my website. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing your, your insights with us today. I know people are going to take a lot from this and be more heart-led investors. So thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on and having such great questions. It's wonderful to have such an engaged and thoughtful conversation and a friendly, friendly but skeptical conversation around this topic. That's me. Thank you so much. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable, and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian Trademark and the Guardian G trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.